We know him as the creator of Doctor Who, but there's a side of Sidney Newman that you probably don't know. We talk with Graham Burke about his contributions to Newman's memoir on This Week in Time Travel for August 15th. Welcome back to This Week in Time Travel. I'm Chip. I'm Alyssa. Hey, everybody. We are so excited to have Graham on to talk about his posthumous assistance with Sidney Newman's memoir. Yes, uh, it's a really fascinating book. Sidney's contributions are left in one section, and Graham comes in with his own contributions to add some additional details and to fill in some stories and to give us a little bit more insight into the creation of Doctor Who. But... Don't be fooled thinking this is just a origin of Doctor Who story. There's a really fascinating story about Sydney's media career uh, and the enormous impression that he left, particularly in British television. So definitely stick around for that because it's a really interesting conversation. But before we get into that, a little bit of news happened in the last week, some of it happening between when we recorded last week's episode and when it actually dropped, and that was Jodie Whittaker started giving a whole bunch of interviews, BBC Six, talking to Lisa Mzimba, and this was all primarily driven by her promoting her new BBC drama series, Trust Me, where she plays a different kind of doctor, which has just led to so many puns, guys. Like, y'all can cool it with the doctor puns. We get it. It's funny. She's playing one kind of doctor, but not that doctor, but not that joke that they make in Doctor Who all the time because she's playing an actual medical doctor. But maybe it's just... We get it. We get it. There's puns. (laughs) But funnily enough, the people that were interviewing her had just a couple of questions or 500 about the next gig that she's going to be taking after Trust Me. Alyssa, I've got hearts in my eyes after all of these interviews. Is this what it's like to have a crush on a doctor? I think I've got a crush on a doctor. I've just been on cloud nine. She is so happy and excited, and I am just enamored. I'm utterly enamored. Uh, I didn't know how strong her northern accent was. And I really hope that they keep that. And I hope that they make another lots of planets have a north joke, because why not lean into that? She's had some great interactions with fans already. There was one interview that they showed um, some early cosplay of her doctor, and she was just hearts and eyes excited about all of the different cosplays that fans had already put together. Um, She's talked a lot about uh, how she got into Doctor Who and how Christopher Eccleston and the new round of Doctor Who uh, got her excited and prepared for it. Um, and so that it's just it's been so exciting watching her get introduced now as as the new doctor. And she also seems really utterly relieved to not have to keep this secret anymore. Yeah, she's been just very open about how hard it was to keep the secret and uh, all that. Uh, I did like she said in a couple of the interviews, she was talking about the discipline, the fact that she was working so hard on Trust Me when she got the job. She didn't have energy for being tempted to 
spill the beans about the about the gig because she had a job to do. She was concentrating on the other thing. So it was just perfect timing from her perspective to get this great news while she's in the middle of a job, which is kind of the same way that it worked out for Peter Capaldi because he was working on the Musketeers at the time. Exactly. It always helps to keep your mind busy when you've got that big secret running around in your head. I'm the doctor. I'm the doctor. I'm the doctor. Right. Also, we only had like 10 seconds on screen in the introduction video to sort of get beginnings of a hint of what kind of personality the 13th Doctor is going to have. But I was reminded as we are watching these interviews that, you know what, Jodie Whittaker is an actor. The lazy person's interpretation of what Doctor Who is like is that you just cast somebody who's going to be themselves as the Doctor. Jodie Whittaker, the person, carries herself very differently from those few seconds that we got of the 13th Doctor, I thought. What about you? I mean, I'm trying very hard not to even go down that path. You know, we've got 10 seconds of footage. We've got a wonderful actress that we're all enamored by. And it's just I have to keep zap the spe- these seconds, Alyssa. No, Chip, no. This is how we come to false conclusions when we overanalyze tiny bits of meaningless data. We gotta wait until she actually gets, you know, filming started and has a costume picked out and we have a trailer. Like, everybody take deep breaths, hold your horses. We will get there eventually. You're not doing anything for my general lack of patience and my desire for instant gratification here. I'm just saying. Look, I am perfectly happy to come in and be the fandom mother and tell everybody to straighten up and just wait a goddamn second. We will get there in a minute. In all seriousness, though, these interviews are great. They show an actress who is really excited about the upcoming job and seems to be very well aware of what she's getting into and the fandom culture that she's entering in. And she has spoken to past doctors, including Capaldi and Tennant, of course. And the big takeaway that she describes in these interviews is they're telling her to just just have fun. And they're sort of preparing her for what it's going to be like, but they're not telling her how to do it. Exactly. And, you know, she's had a really great response to questions about the unique thing that she will bring to the role. And, you know, one of the interviews I read, she said, they're all unique. You know, every single doctor is unique. Of course, she's going to be unique when she comes into the role because she is going to bring her own interpretation, her own perspective on that. Um, And that's what makes this character so wonderful that we get something a little bit new and a little bit familiar every single time. The 13th Doctor, Jodie Whittaker, I still cannot wait until next fall. Yes. Another bit of news that hit us is that David Tennant's got a job again. This is very exciting. David Tennant actually has two jobs. The first that we're very excited about is that he is going to be playing the demon Crowley from Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's novel Good Omens, which is just a such a delightful role. When I first heard he was cast in Good Omens, I'll be honest, I thought he was going to be the angel Aziraphale because he can do that very sort of dorky nerdiness very well. Um, but this is a very Kilgrave-like role, not quite as evil. It's more, you know, uh, lighthearted 
uh, than Jessica Jones would well, have Well, he be. is trying to sort of avert the end of the world. This you is know. true. Uh, so it's a, it's a very interesting role for him to play, and I'm super excited by this. Yeah, uh, Good Omens is the first novel by Neil Gaiman, co-written with Terry Pratchett. It is an end-of-the-world kind of farce. It's got a lot of Douglas Adams' DNA to it. People have been trying to dramatize it for ages. Terry Gilliam tried to make it into a movie. And Amazon is going to turn it into an Amazon original series, about six episodes of David Tennant goodness, along with Michael Sheen, who Doctor Who fans will remember as the voice of House, and he was Zeus in Tron Legacy. He was the guy dancing around with a cane and um, causing all kinds of trouble. And, he, you know, that's going to be a really interesting pair. I think so. But uh, I'm particularly excited to see what David Tennant does with the role. The other exciting bit of David Tennant news is that he's back for Jessica Jones Series 2. So not only are we going to get David Tennant as a literal demon, we're also going to get him back as Kilgrave, which is going to be really exciting. And disturbing because Kilgrave is disturbing. He's very disturbing. But, you know, I'm glad David Tennant got to explore a role like that. It's very interesting and unusual for him. And he really leans into it in a way that I think a lot of other actors would have sort of pulled back from. And he is utterly convincing as someone who's truly terrifying. Like, I thought I would never be able to fully um, accept him in the Kilgrave role because I really had the role of the doctor up front in my head, like the same way I watch Harry Potter um, and the Goblet of Fire. And I'm not like really believing it. I'm like, there's, you know, the doctor in cosplay, you know, like he doesn't really get a chance to lean into some of that evil of the character. Um, With Kilgrave, it's like one of the things that deeply affected the way I view Doctor Who now because he uses some of the same mannerisms and it's just it's weird it messes with your mind how he makes those mannerisms seem really truly creepy and evil like it's really good but in a really terrible way well we've mentioned two things that Tennant's doing so we better uh, mention a third just for balance and that is Disney's DuckTales remake dropped over the weekend and he is a Damned good Scrooge McDuck, I'm just going to say. DuckTales, woo! And on a more somber note, now that you've just like sung a happy little cartoon theme song, let's uh, pause and have a more serious moment and remember Victor Pemberton, who uh, died at the age of 85 uh, over the weekend. This is the man who invented the sonic screwdriver, not the drink, but the actual device in Fury from the Deep. He was a script editor working with Peter Bryant for the Tomb of the Cybermen. And Alyssa, the scene that you talked about when we were remembering Debbie Watling uh, a couple of episodes back, the scene where uh, the Doctor and Victoria are talking about their families, that was not written by uh, Jerry Davis and Kit Pedler. It was inserted by this man, Victor Pemberton. That was something that was new to me. I hadn't realized um, that it had been written by an additional writer. Um, And it's 
really sad to have lost him. And of course, everyone's going to remember his contribution in the form of the sonic screwdriver, you know, which is just such a integral part of the show's DNA now. But that speech to Victoria about grief and loss, like that's really imprinted in the emotional DNA of the show because time travel really brings up those possibilities of thinking about life and death and grief in ways that are kind of unique in the TV landscape. And that speech to me is you know, one of the really defining moments of the Doctor's characters. You know, there are echoes of that in every Doctor that has followed when they have tried to talk with their companions about what it means to be a time traveler and how that influences not only the way they see the entire universe, but how they view their own personal lives. You know, you see this in uh, the Ninth Doctor's conversation with Rose, both after they've seen the earth destroyed and uh, after Rose has tried to save her father. You know, you see this in uh, the doctor's conversations with Amy and Clara through all that they go through. Um, And that's sort of an early defining moment. Um, And it's really sad to have lost him. You know, he's made such an incredible contribution uh, to the show. And in such a short time, too. He was... He uh, script edited the Tomb of the Cybermen and made those contributions. He freelanced Fury from the Deep. And then that was kind of it for his uh, involvement in Doctor Who. He comes back in 1976 writing an experimental Doctor Who episode for audio cassette and vinyl record, Doctor Who and the Pescatons. And he novelized both Fury from the Deep and the Pescatons. And... I, I saw a couple of interviews with him where he uh, groused that he never got a dime in royalties for the Sonic <laughs> Screwdriver, especially after it became, you know, the Sonic Screwdriver he created, it turned screws. Sonic Screwdriver exactly. today, it's a magic wand. <laughs> you know, isn't that the constant problem sometimes with Doctor Who? These people create such incredible things, and then there are marketing opportunities, and BBC gets to own just about everything except the Daleks. So, you know, kudos to Terry Nation and his estate for managing that so well. He was a longtime writer and producer. He produced documentary films. He did radio. He created the Lighthouse Keeper for the UK version of Fraggle Rock. Um, he, he kept his hand in for a very long time. And into his 80s, he drives by car through Europe and Scandinavia it, into the Arctic Circle as a fundraiser for the charity Help for Heroes. Uh, this is a man who lived life to the fullest. So Victor Pemberton, uh, contributions to Doctor Who and to UK drama, and uh, he will be missed. Speaking of drama, we have a really fantastic interview for you with Graham Burke, who contributed to Sidney Newman's autobiography. And let's get started with it. After this word from, well, they're not our sponsors. They're our fellow, you know, podcasts. We'll be right back. This week on The Incomparable Network. Comics, animation, and two live-action series. Jason Snell and friends cover all things The Tick, 
on The Incomparable. Spoon. Lex Friedman has never seen The Empire Strikes Back. The hell? Dan Morin fixes this on not playing. And Erica and Steven meet the second Doctor, not for the first time, of course, on Lazy Doctor Who. All this and more at TheIncomparable.com. you learn to draw? Gallifrey. Is that in Ireland? Yes, it must be. You're not Irish? Not at all, no. My father, Sidney, was a, a watchmaker from Nottingham. And my mother, Verity, was... Um, well, she was a nurse, I oh, We make such good wives. <laughs> really? Right? Yes. That sound bite from Paul Cordell's episode, Human Nature is a reference to the parentage of our beloved TV show. His father, Sidney, a.k.a. Sidney Newman, and mother, Verity, a.k.a. Verity Lambert, the initial, the the head of drama for the BBC and the original producer of Doctor Who. And two years in the making, Sidney Newman's memoir, Head of Drama, is about to be published in September by ECW Press, and the funny thing about that book is Sidney Newman didn't spend a whole lot of time on the thing that all of us would probably be most interested in, the uh, creation of Doctor Who and his role in it. And that's why for the last couple of years, somebody's been helping posthumously Sidney Newman with his memoir. Returning to This Week in Time Travel, where he has been helping us out in the Department of Received Fan Wisdom, it's the creator and host of Reality Bomb podcast and co-author with Robert Smith of a whole bunch of books about Doctor Who. It's Graham Burke once more. Hello, Graham. Hello, Chip. Hello, Alyssa. Great to have you back with us. Well, great to be here. And this is definitely a topic that I'm very interested in. Uh, There's always so many stories around about Sidney Newman and a lot of fan legend that it sometimes gets hard to figure out what's real and what is not. And I really loved your additions to his sections of the memoir. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) So who was Sidney Newman and where did he come from? Sidney Newman was a Canadian. He was born in the Jewish tenements that existed in Toronto in the early 1910s. And he kind of had a hard scrabble existence. Uh, he caught a break uh, basically be- by going to art school. Uh, he, he There were art classes held on the Sabbath. He had to convince his very devout father to uh, allow him to actually go to those classes. And from there, he found more and more opportunities uh, through the Depression and and eventually found his way to the National Film Board and then found his way to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And then from there, found his way into producing drama and then found his way to Britain where he created the Avengers and produced all sorts of drama for uh, an independent television network, ABC, not the ABC we know in America, but uh, an ABC that was based out of Manchester. And from there, he was poached to become the head of drama at the BBC, where he created Doctor Who. So that's a very short history. Now, one of the things I knew previously about Sidney Newman was his work as head of drama in BBC and the way he sort of completely re-envisioned that department. And it's always been on the fringes of the story about Doctor Who, because this sort of came out of a need to fill a time slot in the Saturday afternoon schedule. 
But it seems like that work was really important for his long-standing legacy at the BBC and how he really revitalized and innovated on the drama program there. Can you tell us a little bit more about what he did and how that legacy impacted the BBC? Yeah, he, he was brought in actually to the BBC because he had sort of revitalized uh, how television drama was done uh, from this sort of weekend-only independent <laughs> independent network on ITV. He basically uh, produced a show that and brought in something called kitchen sink drama, and what that was was basically bringing contemporary idioms to drama. So instead of people sort of talking like they belonged in a Noel Coward play in received pronunciation and sort of and sort of doing their best Noel Coward kind of stuff, it was it was to try and say what are plays that are about working class people? What are plays about people in Liverpool talking in Liverpool accents, which was uh, done a play done by Alan Owen called No Transfer Lime Street and he sort of did that over the heads of his bosses saying, "I can't understand what these people are saying." And he brought playwrights like Pinter, Harold Pinter, to television. And it had an incredible effect. And so the BBC came to him and said, well, you basically stole Harold Pinter from BBC Radio, and we want you to do that kind of magic for us instead. So instead of just making him a producer, they made him the head of the drama department. And so, yeah, he rethought the sort of they, – they restructured how they did drama to make it more responsive to producers. It used to be a kind of centralized, almost Soviet-style kind of – kind of construction where there was a script unit there was there was a director's unit and and instead he said no they should be we should do this according to the type of drama and let the producers pick their own directors and let the story editors pick the writers and instead of instead of this kind of centralized unit system and so that sort of radically changed the shape of british drama for about 30 years and from there, Newman looked at how, you know, tried to sort of create that kind of magic he did at ABC, at the BBC. So there's Doctor Who, and of course, he, you know, the, the, there's what he did, and we'll talk about that a bit more. But outside of that, he basically radically changed the single plays they were doing there and produced some very lasting works uh, of contemporary drama that I think when people sort of name off sort of the, the most important things that happened in British television in the 60s, they'll name off... The Avengers, they'll name off episodes of the Wednesday play like Up the Junction and and Kathy Come Home. They'll name they'll name Doctor Who, of course, and they'll name uh, series like the Forsyth Saga. They were all things that Newman had his hand in. Um, and they were all things that Newman had some degree of uh, some involvement in. So yeah, he was quite he was quite revolutionary towards that. What he did with plays, I think Russell T. Davies talks about the fact that that the Wednesday play in particular was very influential on him that because it was sort of cutting edge contemporary rip from the headlines kind of drama and that really kind of it vitalized what television drama was and that sort of he said that he's always said that was an influence on him on queer as folk for example so yeah it was quite a quite a radical kind of uh, quite a radical thing he did in British television in the 60s I really was interested in the section about agitational contemporaneity because really saw that influence in Davies's work. I think the section about Up the Junction was incredibly fascinating to me because of Newman's attitude towards it. Um, and I just want to quote it back because I want people who are listening to be able to, to see what his attitude was. But um, Newman said, I don't support sex for titillating effect, 
But when in Up the Junction, some viewers objected to the abortion scene, I think they were wrong. This wasn't put in as an irrelevance. It was completely part of the kind of life we were revealing. And it's it's a very political attitude of, you know, this isn't just an extraneous scene in. Like, we are trying to make viewers think about current social issues with television. And it it's a very modern attitude. You know, you still have people doing television shows like Aziz Ansari's uh, Master of None still sort of justifying the having an episode comment on current events. And here's Newman doing this since the 60s in television. I think what Newman's genius was, was first of all, understanding that what he jokingly called agitational contemporaneity, I think ha- was 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 what was needed for the moment in, in 60s drama was that sort of let's, you know, let's talk about real situations for real people and not kind of shirk on it. He didn't produce Up to Junction, but he basically supervised the production of it and ran interference for the BBC bosses if they if they had concerns about it. And he helped field the complaints that came in and and he was very much on the vanguard because he felt that was that was what was needed for what was going to make television great. And he at the time he was fighting a war against uh against his against the controller of BBC One Donald Baverstock and who felt that this sort of thing was should be. We should have more stuff like Doctor Who and Doctor Finley's Casebook, and and more kind of just nice little series. And the single play wasn't ne- necessary. And what Newman did was said, no, this this is what we need to keep the public discussion going on on, on and what makes television relevant. And, and so yeah, so I think it was totally 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 that. This emphasis on grounding and relevance when he uh, created Doctor Who. And there are some questions about how much of that credit ought to be shared. But his vision for Doctor Who was very sciencey, very historical, very relevant. And that's not exactly how it turned out. No, it wasn't. Um, I always sort of say that something I don't actually say in the book, but one of my 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 thinking is that. I think Newman's career in in Canadian television and and working for the National Film Board of Canada really influenced Doctor Who in many ways because I think Doctor because I think Canadian television always had this great remit to sort of educate as well as inform and so did the so did the National Film Board and I think he he was able to take that part of his life and bring it to Doctor Who and he because he wanted a, a show that sort of did an educational remit he was willing to uh, the great thing about Newman was he once he saw what other people wanted to bring to the party he was quite happy to acquiesce to that um but he but he yeah he always sort of felt that there should be uh, some sort of educational component that it should educate as well as as well as entertain, and I think that that really comes from a that's a very Canadian kind of mentality about things. So you're very clear in your addition uh, to his biography, and Sidney Newman is himself very clear in his biography that the credit for creating what Doctor Who would become really should be shared uh, with Verity Lambert, um, who produced the show, got it off the ground, gave it a direction. Um, and though he had a huge hand in conceptualizing it, Verity took the idea and ran and really stood up to him sometimes, uh, you know, arguing for uh, the existence of the Daleks, uh, among other things. And I thought that you had some very interesting sections in your book about his relation with Verity and uh, with other women in the BBC. You know, I think First off, thank you for 
not adding any more fuel to the unfortunately proliferating rumors that Verity had to sleep with Sidney to get the job. Sidney puts that down pretty firmly in his biography, but among other things, uh, Richard Marson's book about Verity Lambert, um, I think, really did a disservice to Verity's legacy by presenting it as like an equal sides. Well, these people say this, and these people say this, and, you know, who knows? I'm not going to you know, exert any editorial influence on all of these rumors that I'm just going to bring up again. So I think really appreciate the way you wrote about that in your book. But you also hinted that he could be a little bit, for lack of a better word, maybe a cad uh, with some of the other women uh, at the BBC. It's almost a stock response you give to hear people like that. He was a complex person. Yeah. And it was, a, I think, on the one hand, I think you have the fact that, you know, he's very clear, as you say, Verity got the job on her own merits. And he's very clear about, you know, Verity's strength of character. He, I mean, he talks about how she basically had to go direct the cameras while in an ABC production where its main star died <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in, in production, it was in a live television show. And so Ted Kotcheff, the director, had to go on the floor and try and make up the last act while, while she basically called from the floor. And, and so he's quite clear about this, this, the stuff. He picked her because she had that kind of toughness of character and she could handle that. And he hired producers like her. He hired a producer named Irene Shubik who would go on to create The Jewel and the Crown, which is one of the great British miniseries of the 1980s. He so he had that on the positive column, and he had a lasting relationship with with Verity Lambert. And Verity Lambert said incredible things about him all through Newman's career, and and she even came to his funeral in in Toronto when he died. Uh, on the other hand, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on the other hand, Newman jokes with Malcolm Hulk when when he's writing about you know uh, creating creating the thing that you know he said you know I wanted to make sure that you know that we got a good screamer with great breasts to go play Susan. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a bit complex. And so you have to kind of, it's one of those things where you have to look at the math and say, yes, he did say things like that. And yes, even Irene Schobeck joked that, you know, he picked Verity for her legs. But I think at the same time, he hired Verity Lambert to be the first drama producer in at the BBC. And he knew that was going to be a hard job. And Doctor Who was a creation of his that he really wanted to see succeed. And it was going to be the first drama production he had actually created for the BBC. It was the first new show to come out under his auspices. So he had a lot riding on it. So he wasn't going to just pick anyone. So yeah. So you have that kind of hiring decision. You have the decision of Irene Schubach. I think the proof is in the pudding. And what he did was was in hiring Verity and letting Verity get on with the show because the show that Newman created was a very limited remit to, uh, I, you know, he created the show in the respect that he had an old man traveling a, traveling a time machine that looked like a police box. And what the show becomes is Verity Lambert. And he quickly gets out of the way and sees that she knows what she's doing. She obviously has a, has a real vision and feel for this. Let her do it. And I think that's to his, that's to his credit. Mm-hmm. What did uh, Sidney Newman do after Doctor Who? Well, Newman uh, first went to work uh, for the British film industry. He worked for what became EMI Films, uh, but that kind of imploded because of corporate politics. So he went back to Canada, and he went back to Canada initially to go work for the Canadian equivalent of the FCC, I guess, um, and, and Ofcom in Britain. Uh, so it was it was the regulatory, uh, the broadcast regulation, and at, that bored him to tears after about six months. So he was asked if he would want to become the head of the National Film Board of Canada, which 
is a which is sort of a, an organization that produces public films. It was a very prestigious job at the time. He took it. And it didn't quite go so well, partially because of the times he lived in. He did it. He started in September of 1970. A month later uh, was what was known in Canada as the October Crisis. It's when uh, a terrorist, the terrorist organization known as the Front de Libération de Québec, uh, basically they kidnapped they kidnapped a British politician, and they murdered and they murdered a uh, a Quebec uh, provincial minister. And basically, the Prime Minister of Canada suspended habeas corpus and uh, invoked the War Measures Act and set the military out, out in force in, in Quebec. And Newman was working in Quebec at the time <laughs> and was a, considered a target. He was, <laughs> he was basically given, he was basically escorted to work every day. He was put in a, put in a car with it, with it, which had a siren on it. And, and he sort of, and, you know, because he was, he was a possible kidnapping subject. Um, Unfortunately, the problem was is that in that climate, he was ill-suited for the job. He was, he was not, uh, he was not, he did not speak French. He did not really understand the emerging identity politics that were happening in Quebec at the time, and it was a very politicized uh, French group, and so it didn't go well. He did a lot of great things while he was there. He 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 basically ensured funding for what was called Studio D, which is a filmmaking unit for women. Uh, which lasted for decades afterward um, and did some very important films uh, that internationally. He also ensured that the uh, ending of what I think is the greatest Canadian film, uh, Mon Uncle Antoine, happened. So he did a lot of great things. Those things are always ignored by the histories. He, he sort of looked upon for a very tumultuous time. His career kind of went into kind of freefall after that. He didn't uh, – he sort of – Found work in the eighties uh, back in Britain, uh, producing a couple of things. They didn't quite work, and yeah, sort of didn't. Never had the kind of. I remember I interviewed Ted Kotcheff, who produced a lot of great, who's written and who directed a lot of wonderful films, including uh, including. Uh, he did the first Ram the first good Rambo movie. He did uh, he did uh, oh I'm I'm blanking on the title of the movie, but it's a it's a very it's a very um, fun with Dick and Jane. He did he did he's done a lot of great movies, and I and I asked him about Newman going and he, he said he said I think the greatest mistake Sydney ever made was was leaving Britain he should have stayed there he was he was revered for what he did he he had he had he had some standing he could have he could have he could have re-upped his contract for another five years at the at the BBC and he could have done other great work and I think I think a lot of people felt that way uh, about about Newman my last question for you Graham is obviously more people know of Sidney Newman than they did a few years ago because of Mark Gatiss's wonderful docudrama about the creation of Doctor Who, an adventure in space and time, where Sidney Newman is played by Brian Cox. Reading head of drama, Sidney Newman doesn't come across as exactly a shrinking violet. He's got a pretty strong personality, and he has a pretty strong personality in the telefilm as well, but I was wondering how closely uh, the Sidney Newman on television resembles the Sidney Newman who made television? 
I don't think very much. I think everyone in an adventure in space and time is is being played by people who are about twenty years older <laughs> than the actual than the actual actual historical figures. So you got so you've got you know David Bradley who's who's seventy portraying a fifty three year old William Hartnell. You've got you've got a seventy year old Brian Cox playing a forty year old forty five year old Sidney Newman, and you've got and you've got Mark Eden who's like in his in his almost in his eighties playing playing a a forty year old Donald Baverstock. So it's a very it's sort of I think it's about the the impression of the 1960s in British television more than the actual reality. I think these figures are all much younger. Uh, the other thing is Brian Cox is is a is a huge man and Sidney Newman was this little guy. He was he, and so the physicality that Brian Cox has in the role the sort of pop 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 and the sort of moving around and is not the way you look you look at interview footage of Newman he's 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 much he's much more soft spoken, he's much more c- contained, he's much more um but I think there there's a certain impression that he left that was kind of Hollywood mogulish, and I think that I think that was sort of the the overriding truth that I think made it into it. Um, but no, I don't think he was like that at all. I think he was. I think he was much. I think he was much softer spoken. I think he was much. He was much more reflective in many ways. I think he he shocked people, and I think he had a, an ego. But he was also a very insecure person, and I think he, and I don't and I think he wore his heart on his sleeve. So I think I so I think it captures that kind of brashness, but I don't think it captures the kind of insecurity that also pervaded him as well. I truly enjoyed reading ahead a little bit from everybody else. So Graham, this comes out in September, right? It does. And where can people go to pre-order their copies? Oh, they can go to ecwpress.com and it's it's also on Amazon virtually everywhere. So Wonderful. Well, Graham, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, everybody should go out and read Head of Drama because it is a really enjoyable read. Well, thank you very much. All right, a little bit of a shorter episode this time, more more in that sort of golden ideal that I had for this series back when uh, we were planning it, and then we started doing like massive multi-hour episodes and things like that. This is the problem with being too ambitious. Ah... Well, we will be back next week. You can find us at thisweekintimetravel.com or on Twitter at drwhothisweek. I tweet at numeral two-minute time lord, and Alyssa tweets and tumbles at Whovian Feminism. Yeah, we're on Facebook, too. You can support This Week in Time Travel by subscribing, sharing, and even becoming a member of The Incomparable Network at theincomparable.com slash members. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week on This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye.